This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day to day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist Zoe Williams on the curious political role of the first bloke. Writer Tom Lamont meets Oscar-winning actor and all-round dude Jeff Bridges. And finally, journalist Bronwyn Adcock gains a little insight from a radical Buddhist nun on the secret to happiness. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we begin, just a warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, selfless, supportive, furtive, stoic. Being the partner to a political leader is a thankless job and one that many would rather avoid, certainly if you're a woman. But, as Zoe Williams observes, it's a slightly different and far more forgiving story if you're a man. Read by Serena Mantegi. Hugh O'Leary recently joined a club I'm not sure many of us would envy. No, not the Husbands of Liz Truss Club, but the First Guys Club or, the New Zealand variant which I prefer, the First Blokes Club. That select but growing band of male partners of heads of state. In many ways, it is less onerous than being a female consort, since certain ancient social prejudices remain. A male partner is not expected to go everywhere with his spouse, at least not until he retires, If O'Leary is still married to a Prime Minister when he reaches retirement age, he is currently 48, I will eat my hat, your hat and all the hats. The pair are said to live fairly separate lives. Few in the party would even recognise O'Leary, outside the Greenwich Mafia, their local Conservative scene. An unnamed source from Truss's office said they had to give him access to her work diary, otherwise he would never know where she is or when she's coming back. Nor is a first bloke expected to look any particular way. He can be scruffy or smart, 
thin or fat. He can cut any which way, which suits most first blokes, except in the case of Marcus Räikkönen, husband of Finland's Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, whose Instagram feed is like a cry for help. World, I know it is not fashionable to notice my appearance, but seriously, will you just look at me? I'm too handsome for venture capital. I'm too handsome for eco-startups. First ladies, for all the unwanted scrutiny, judgment and idiot requests they get for biscuit recipes, are not just accepted, but seen as necessary to the political landscape. But first men tend to slip into an uncomfortable space where all the bigotry that can't be said out loud about the female leader, it mainly boils down to what's she doing there really, surely this is unnatural, is mediated instead through the subtle emasculation of her husband. If he isn't a complete man, it follows that she isn't a complete woman, and therefore the universe is at least partially back on its axis. The husband of Kamala Harris, Douglas Emhoff, lawyer and visiting professor at Georgetown Law Centre, is known as the first second gentleman, which in three words distills the novelty and aberrance of the role, and the archaic standards used to judge it. He's the first because the vice president has never been a woman. It's like he's been awarded first prize in a race that should never have been run. He's the second because she's the second to the president, but also he's second to her, so he's like second squared. And he's her gentleman because she would have been his lady had she not decided to be ambitious instead. History doesn't relate whether or not this bugs him, partly because it's much worse on Reddit threads. There, he's the biggest cuck in America right now. Either way, he's quite a serious character who keeps his focus on more important things like social justice. This is one very useful route for a first guy. First modelled by quantum chemist and professor Joachim Zauer, second husband of Angela Merkel. Dagmar Seeland, UK correspondent of the German magazine Stern, recalls, Zauer managed this incredible feat of remaining in the background for 25 years, which was interesting given that he was such an eminent, famous scientist in his own right. It's partly because people like that abhor publicity. They have complicated minds. They see the world in a much more complex way. O'Leary, finance director of Affinity Global Real Estate, doesn't have the serious-minded above-the-fray option available to him. Say what you like about global real estate, it's definitely not above politics. But there are other ways for first guys to stay behind the scenes without losing their identity, including, but not limited to, being rich, Philip May, Dennis Thatcher, Sindra Finas, husband of Norway's erstwhile Prime Minister Erna Solberg, or being a lovable loafer, Dennis, again, and Clark Gayford, fiancé of New Zealand's Jacinda Ardern. You also need an origin story for the relationship. This is just bald-faced sexism, I'm afraid. Male leaders actually often do meet their wives in a political context. Gordon Brown met Sarah on the way to the Scottish Labour conference. Norma met John Major in the 1970 GLC election campaign. But nobody goes on about it. Female leaders, by contrast are tacitly expected to have met their spouse in a precinct that is both germane, how can she be a serious politician if she's not always at the politics, and makes her sound fun, how can she be trusted if she doesn't have a human side. In consequence, it always seems to come together somewhere like a Conservative Party disco, 
the maze, or a party conference cocktail party, Truss and O'Leary. Even though if you've ever been near such an event, you'll know this to be impossible. They're hell. They smell of hell. Yet, if you met through politics, it follows that you, the man, are also passionate politically. The problem of relative ambition and success surfaces. The first guy has to slip effortlessly into the background, even if the fact that he wanted to become a politician in his own right is a matter of public record. O'Leary regularly stands for the local council in Greenwich, always loses horribly, keeps on canvassing. I think he's just owning his own political failure here in a kind of crash-and-burn display. I'm going to keep going for these very low-stakes roles in which I am more or less guaranteed failure to indicate that I am not competing with my wife since we all know who would win. And that's one way of doing it. It's easier for Tory first guys to slip into the background because they just slide into finance and forge their fortunes there. It's basically the same career with more money. Per the old saying, conservatives are always in power. They're just only sometimes in office. Katie Perrier, May's Director of Communications, remembers her husband Philip very warmly. Amazing temperament, lovely man, and says that part of what sustained their relationship is that he never lost his passion for the party, despite having parked his own ambitions within it. He'd be on the phone banks all night, out delivering leaflets. He didn't invite cameras, it wasn't for show. At one point, as a couple, it was decided that he'd fall behind Theresa, but he's just as political and just as engaged in the Conservative Party succeeding. Famously, Labour stalwart Margaret Beckett's late husband, Leo, only pushed her to stand in Lincoln in the first place in 1974 because he foresaw defeat in the constituency for Labour and he wanted someone to keep the seat warm for when the party had better prospects and he would become the candidate himself. It is pretty impressive how he came back from seeing his own ambitions completely thwarted to be a lifelong helpmeet to her sterling political career. It shouldn't be problematic for one member of a couple to be more successful than the other in a field that both find appealing. Yet society still abhors a more powerful woman, and enforces this through mass media. If it sounds archaic, it's actually slightly worse. Professor Susan Duran, author of Monarchy and Matrimony, The Courtships of Elizabeth I, says... I think the British are more gender-sensitive now, so when we look at the past, we tend to interpret it through gender. In Elizabeth's era, they had a theory of the king's two bodies which separated the body of the monarch from the political institution. The double-think was that, had Elizabeth taken a spouse, as the monarch's husband, he would be a subject and therefore show deference, but in domestic affairs, she would be his wife and normal relations would be expected. We've maybe lost a bit of that subtlety of mind. Perhaps more difficult, as a first bloke, is that female leaders, as well as being picked over for their appearance, are remorselessly sexualised, their character traits expressed through physical objectification, their weaknesses foregrounded as visible in the body. God help them if they actually are attractive, because then all their social behaviours turn into sexual provocations. Francois Mitterrand, famously said of Thatcher that she had the eyes of Caligula and the mouth of Marilyn Monroe, which is batshit on its own terms. Her mouth resembles Monroe's only in so far as it is also a mouth, but it stuck because it put her in her place. 
She was no longer a tough negotiator, but a cruel seductress. President Sarkozy went a different way with Chancellor Merkel. She says she is on a diet and then helps herself to a second helping of cheese. But the underlying impact is the same. Strength recast as weakness via the diffuse but elemental shortcomings of the female form. Unarguably, Finnish PM Sanna Marin has it worse. With coordinated leaks and witch hunts, abetted by the mainstream tabloid media, to turn everything she does into a quasi-sexual transgression. She's never photographed dancing. She's always grinding or dancing intimately with glamorous models. There's an expectation that the first guy will be unreactive, characterless, almost invisible, or, failing that, slightly delinquent in the Prince Philip mode, a child of, rather than a man in, the relationship. On the plus side, if a first bloke gets cheated on, it's done and nobody ever mentions it again. Truss's 2006 affair with Mark Field was a huge problem for her with the Norfolk Tory Taliban, but never attached itself as a slight to Hugh O'Leary. This is a baffling double standard. If a first lady gets cheated on, it's her fault forever, either for failing to keep him or failing to dump him, or very often both. Same-sex couples, well, Luxembourg Prime Minister Xavier Battelle and his husband Gauthier Destiné, never had this hypersexual yet prurient interest taken in them. Nobody cared, says one Luxembourg journalist who did not wish to be named. For a country so conservative, it was somehow surprising. My theory? For Benelux standards, we were late to the party. Belgium and the Netherlands had had high-profile gay politicians before. Plus, Battelle conformed to traditional marriage values. And in a small country, people tend to let the private be private. Clark Gayford, despite some ruthless but quite random takedowns in the New Zealand press, one journalist doesn't like the flourish of the E in Clark, is the role model I'd choose were I Hugh O'Leary. A bit of a himbo, maybe, who initially made his name on a reality TV show, he met Jacinda Ardern through a constituency issue. The Government Communications Security Bureau Amendment Bill. Political meet-cute. She got pregnant days before assuming office as PM in 2018, announcing the news, I'll be PM and a mum while Clark will be the first man of fishing and stay-at-home dad. They got engaged in 2019 but aren't yet married due to Covid. Even though he makes a perfectly legitimate living presenting a fishing programme, the fishing is always presented, including by him, as the ultimate hobby which is a common way to neutralise any perceived threat from the first bloke. Possibly the most aggravating trope in this whole clambake is that while any female consort is routinely presented as manipulative and conniving in petty ways, male partners are assumed to be much more influential Svengali figures, their deciding influence over their spouse constantly intuited. All her decisions trace back to his personal interests. An example. Theresa May must have launched airstrikes against Syria to further Philip's investment interests. Would I prefer that no one had arms dealer interests anywhere near the Mother of Parliaments? Sure. But it seems improbable that she'd be that bent. 
Margaret Thatcher, product of an earlier time, was so keenly aware of this risk that the popular caricature of Dennis, lit up like the Commonwealth half the time, playing golf the other half, as popularised in privatised Dear Bill column, was deliberately devised by the Thatchers and Bill Deeds, one-time editor of The Telegraph, in order to defang him. And there is something about these pursuits, golf, fishing, that is deeply evocative of the slow-paced solitary man, highly unlikely to be plotting anything. O'Leary can take comfort from the fact that this prime ministership is in for such a wild ride from external factors that, one, nobody will be combing over the first guy, and two, even if they do, it won't be for very long. For as long as his term in not office lasts, there is a medium-length line of role models who went before him. Background, shadowy creatures who were probably nothing like as interested in golf as they made out to be. That was First Rule of First Blokes Club, Don't Talk About Politics, by Zoe Williams. Read by Serena Mantegi. We'll be back after this short break. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online. But one man, he's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock? From The Guardian, I'm Shirin Kaler, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear 
and the lives we lead online. Listen to all episodes now. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Welcome back to Weekend. Next, Jeff Bridges has had a rough two years. First came cancer, then came COVID. But having survived both, he's back on our screens with a brand new TV series, The Old Man, and he's relishing every moment. Tom Lamont sits down with the scruffy sweet Hollywood legend. Read by Stefan Ashton Frank. Jeff Bridges at 72 wakes early and lingers a while in bed. Since a battle with lymphatic cancer that began two years ago, when they found a 9-inch by 12-inch mass in my stomach and a bad case of COVID he contracted on his local chemo ward, it made the cancer look like a piece of cake. Rising in the mornings has been a struggle for the veteran Hollywood actor. I really have to drag myself out of bed, he says. When Bridges is finally up and about, he stretches, he does a daily breathing exercise so intense it leaves him trembling. He makes coffee, he reads. By the time he's down in the garage of his Santa Barbara home, maybe noodling about on a musical instrument or painting, he'll be feeling and behaving more like the Jeff Bridges that moviegoers have come to know. That beautifully unpolished, scruffy, sweet, growly, squeaky figure irresistible in deathless works that include The Fabulous Baker Boys, The Big Lebowski, and True Grit. Our garage has been converted into my hang, Bridges explains, showing off its features to me one day. There are cozy rugs on the floor and paperbacks piled on side tables. Musical equipment takes up a whole corner, opposite another corner dedicated to ceramics. Bridges' own paintings decorate the walls beside photographs of his family, including his brother Bo, his wife Sue, their three adult daughters, and several grandchildren that include a newborn who arrived this year. While Bridges was in isolation, struck down by that cancer and COVID double, Sue arranged for some further additions to the garage. Portable fencing and screen doors were brought in transforming the space into an indoor-outdoor recuperation room, complete with its own water fountain. Bridges was carried here straight from hospital, hooked up to oxygen tanks. His wheeled bed eventually swapped out for a leather recliner as his health improved. Bridges sits in the recliner now, blanketing himself from the waist down for warmth. He has a gray beard and nape-length gray hair that needs frequent tucking behind his ears. His worn blue t-shirt advertises a brewery. He says, I don't know if it's the illnesses or if it's general old age, but my memory of those two years is like a dream, how a dream passes. I can't remember the chronology as I'd like to. One thing he does remember clearly is that right before he got sick, he agreed to star in a big-budget TV series for FX about a retired and aging CIA agent who's brought out of hiding by his former enemies and forced to go on the run. Production had to be paused for over a year while Bridges underwent his various medical treatments in 2020 and 2021. The show makes its belated UK debut this month on Disney+. Plus. Title, The Old Man. The appropriateness is not lost on him. 
He sees the humor in anything and everything. He exists to tell anecdotes. And if he's ever telling you about a bleak or a frightening episode from his life, he'll almost certainly be doing so in fits of high-pitched giggles. Was he ever frightened by the cancer and the COVID that hit him? Bridges hunches his shoulders and rocks. Man, he squeals. How frightened is a baby being born? You're so frightened you don't even have any juice to be frightened. You're just doing it. You're just doing it, man. So he's someone who can quickly identify and make the most of a bright side. As I'm not someone like that, I ask him how he does it. How did he stay positive through two vicious illnesses? Bridges starts to tell an apparently unrelated story, the relevance of which only gradually becomes clear. So I'm remembering the very last gift my father gave me before he died, he says. His father Lloyd was a successful TV actor who died in 1998. Sue and I had this new house at the time, Bridges continues. Huge grounds, and what I really wanted for my birthday was a neat little electric golf cart to get around the property. I know Dad's bought something cool for me. I open a door, and there, it's not the golf cart I wanted. It's like a motorized, gasoline-operated dump truck kind of thing. In my mind, I'm thinking, oh, shit, this is not what I wanted at all. But I say thank you to him. Then he dies. Suddenly, I'm using this vehicle all the time. I'm constantly saying to myself, this is so much better than a golf cart. It's so much more powerful. There's so many more things I can get done. Bridges pats his chest. A where was I gesture? Oh, yeah, positivity. What I learned from that whole experience in hospital was, life is constantly giving us gifts. They may be gifts that we don't think we want. Who wants cancer? Who wants fucking COVID, man? Well, it turns out I did. Because dealing with your mortality, it makes things more precious. It's a gift, man, to realize I've got eyes to look at all this beautiful stuff in the world. I can feel the temperature of the day on my skin. Got a wife who loves me, my kids too, and I can bathe in that love. It's all a gift. Bridges was born to Lloyd and his wife Dorothy at the end of the 1940s, right after they'd lost a child to sudden infant death syndrome, he adds. Can you imagine? Your one-year-old? But they had me. They got back in the saddle. He wound up being the middle of three kids his older brother Bo going on to become a successful film actor, his little sister Cindy an artist. Our mom loved mothering, Bridges remembers. We all got to benefit. She did this thing with her kids called Time. It was an hour every day with each of us, doing whatever we wanted, pretending to be clowns, space monsters. You never got the feeling of duty coming from her. She just dug playing. Later, when Bridges was a listless teenager, he would cash in his time with Dorothy in the form of back rubs. Then, when I was an older guy in my 30s and 40s, I would call her up and say, Hey, I still need time, Mom. And we'd go out to dinner in a restaurant. Reminiscing about this, Bridges pauses to let sudden snorts of laughter pass. I asked him what amused him, and he tells an anecdote about a meal they shared not long before Dorothy's death in 2009. 
We're walking back to the car outside the restaurant, and as the valet guy's about to open the door for her, Mom whispers, Be mean to me. So I'm telling her, Get in the car! Get in the car, you fucking bitch! And the valet guy, he's totally freaking out. Mom's 90, I'm almost 60, and we're playing together, man. (laughs) Still playing. This would be why Bridges pursued a career in acting, to legitimize a life in play. When he was in his early 20s, he made just two films as a professional. He was Oscar-nominated for his role in a third, Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show. Bridges didn't win that time. Actually, four decades passed before he did win. A Best Actor statue finally presented to him in 2009 for his mesmerizing performance as a depressed country musician in Crazy Heart. Between those two book-ending roles, there were sci-fi movies, Starman, Two Trons, superhero movies, Iron Man, straight-faced dramas, The Iceman Cometh, and a beloved Oscar-nominated Western, True Grit. But dude, it was a comedy, The Big Lebowski by the Coen Brothers, that established Bridges as an immortal. He played a jelly-shoed bowling alley rat called Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski. That's the character people stop him in the street to talk about. It's his wife Sue's favorite of his movies. Bridges met Sue in the mid-1970s when he was shooting a forgotten movie called Rancho Deluxe on location in small-town Montana. Sue lived locally, and that was it, he says now. Love at first sight. Boom. Hit me like a ton of bricks. He says he has a picture that a location photographer snapped right as he was asking Sue out on a date, and right as she was saying no. When he asked her again later, she said yes, and they danced in a bar. Their wedding was in 1977, though for months Bridges says he was a bit of a dick about marriage. I love this woman, but being married means giving up a whole other life, right? A whole other thing. So the only way I could get married was to give myself a caveat. Oh, you can always get a divorce. That caveat lingered over the first three years of our marriage. One day Sue called him out on his terrible attitude, telling Bridges in so many words to stop being a grump and grow up. She'd put up with that shit for three years, and thank God she did. Bridges rubs his hands in relief. We're coming up to 45 years together. The photo of their first encounter is his prized possession, he says. I have it in my wallet right now. Copies are well distributed between people I trust in case of loss. You start to see why Bridges would spread a beloved photograph around as soon as he tells you about his history with houses. Jeff and Sue's first marital home burned down. Then in 1994, another place of theirs was destroyed in a Californian earthquake. Afterwards, we moved to a really big house, a lot of acreage, Bridges recalls. The property was on a tree-filled mountain. Wildfire destroyed it. So we moved to another beautiful home, down the hill. We took years to tweak it, getting it just how we wanted it. Bridges, who has virtually been holding back tears of mirth to get to this point in the tale, finally guffaws the punchline. So here comes the flood. The muddy hillside behind them, weakened by fire, collapsed. Four feet of mud came through our front door. Huge boulders, too. 
We had to be rescued by helicopter. Fingers crossed, their current home seems more secure. It's the smallest property they've been in since Bridges and his wife were youngsters together. But its very snugness suits them in these years of his health difficulties, the actor says. Comfortable in his converted garage, tipped back in his reclining chair, Bridges is serious for a rare moment, uncharacteristically lost for words as he tries to describe what it was like to be away from his family during the cancer COVID period. They would come to wave to him through his hospital window. He touches his heart, remembering that. All he can say is, Oh. At one point in our conversation, Bridges tries to recall a younger actor he worked with on our 2013 action comedy R.I.P.D., only to blank on his name. He snaps his fingers, reaching for it. I just watched his recent movie Free Guy. Ryan Reynolds, I suggest? Yes, Bridges exclaims, relieved, troubled as well by the lapse. Isn't that terrible? That's embarrassing. To forget someone's name when they're dear to you, it's awkward. It feels weird to me. Bridges shakes his head and says, Memory man, as I get older, I ask my brain for a name, a word, and it says, Are you kidding? My brain is flipping me fingers. I ask about his return to work on his new drama, The Old Man, whether he struggled to remember lines on set. Ian McKellen, a decade older than Bridges, but still in regular work, once told me that actors die twice. The first death comes when they stop being able to memorize their dialogue. I was pleasantly surprised to find that was not the case on the old man, Bridges says. Maybe it's a short-term, long-term memory thing. I ask him, did he wonder, returning to work as an actor after the longest break of his career, whether his talent would still be there? But that was always the case, he smiles. Even when I was a kid, I would show up on set and wonder, am I going to pull this off? Sue has to remind me that I've always gone off to work feeling like I won't be able to do it. She tells me, have fun. Don't take it too seriously. And the important word there is to. T-O-O, says Bridges, spelling it out. Yeah, you can be sincere as an actor. Yeah, you can get into it but don't let it fuck with your happiness. Before his mother died, she wrote Bridges a poem in which she described the honor of reaching advanced age. I ask him what he thinks she meant by the word. It's interesting. New shit comes up constantly as you get older. But it's not like you're learning new shit. It's more like you're practicing how you respond to life. You kind of get to practice what you are. Bridges continues. People don't talk too much about it, but often in old age, you'll be going through the things that age offers us. Closer proximity to death, a whole different way of dealing with sex, hormonal shifts that make you look at intimacy in a different way, and it almost feels like going through adolescence again. Think of being young. Think of asking a girl out on a first date. Think of how that feels. Bridges touching his heart again issues a high trembling bleat to express how it feels, as love, terror, and hope intermingle. You have versions of that in old age, too. He stares out at the fountain in the outdoor part of the garage. When he was discharged here from hospital, bed-bound and breathing with the aid of tanks, Bridges spent a lot of time contemplating the water fountain. 
He enjoyed seeing the birds that flew down to drink from it. Your attention gets narrower in old age, he says, but there are beautiful things to be seen within that narrow focus. Take his marriage, he says. Being sick, being close to death, it exacerbates the love. I feel that. I feel that. I feel how much love my wife has for me and how much love I have for her. At the beginning of our conversation, Bridges talked me through his morning routine, those aching, grouchy wake-ups before he stretches and breathes and makes coffee. Now he explains how each day ends for him and Sue. We sit and eat dinner in front of the TV. We're always hooked on some new show or another. Maybe we're getting tired. Maybe I have a wrestle with one of the dogs on the carpet for a bit. I'll say to Sue, I'm going up. And she says to me, okay. I get into bed while she does her teeth. She comes in too. We huddle with our dogs. We go to sleep. Heaven, I suggest. Yup, says Bridges, nodding slowly in agreement. Yup. That was Dealing With Your Mortality, It Makes Things More Precious. Hollywood legend Jeff Bridges on the gift of life after cancer by Tom Lamont. Read by Stephen Ashton Frank. Now, from radical political activist to working with prisoners on death row, Buddhist nun Rabina Kortin has learned a few things. Here she meets with Bronwyn Adcock to talk about suffering, happiness, and what Donald Trump can teach us? Read by Serena Mantegi. It's a Tuesday evening in the small country town of Milton on the south coast of New South Wales, and the scent of the freshly brewed chai and homemade soup about to be served is wafting through the drafts in the Country Women's Association Hall as discussion veers between death, killing, war, abortion, prison and suffering. Around 50 people, some long-time members of the local Buddhist group, others curious newcomers, are seated cross-legged on the wooden floor or on plastic chairs, a portrait of a young Queen Elizabeth II looking down, listening to a Buddhist nun. The topic for the night, how to stay positive in a negative environment. Our problem is we think the outside world is the main cause of our suffering and our happiness, says Venerable Robina Cortin, an Australian, now 77, who was ordained in the Tibetan Buddhist Gelugpa tradition in the late 1970s. We understand that when it comes to becoming a musician, that you program yourself and that you are the main cause of becoming a musician. The work is in your mind. You need precision and clarity and perfect theories and then you practice and practice. We know we create our own selves in that sense, she says. But when it comes to turning ourselves into a happy person, we do not believe we have this capacity. But the Buddhist approach is that we produce ourselves, whether it's a musician or a happy person. We're the boss. But what about all the extra suffering of the past few years? Asks a woman, citing COVID, floods and war in Ukraine. 
Cortin relays the story of two imprisoned Tibetan women who were tortured and sexually assaulted, yet were able to interpret this experience in a way that allowed them to bear it. The questioning woman looks dissatisfied. What is it? Cortin asks. Come on, say it, it's important. Cortin can be at once warm and piercingly direct. When a questioner interrupted her mid-sentence at the previous evening's event, she responded, Can't you hear I'm trying to answer your question? And it takes a moment for the woman to reveal what she's thinking. It just doesn't seem practical, she finally says. It is practical when you are being sexually abused in a prison, Cortin says. We have the power to change the way we interpret our lives, and they were able to do that and they were even able to have compassion for their torturers. The result of this? They didn't lose their minds. It's not moralistic, it really is practical. Honey child, listen to me, says Cortin, softening. Our trouble is we can't cope with our own suffering, or the suffering out there, so we just want to make it all go away. We can't. All we can do is do our best in this crazy, insane asylum called Planet Earth. Earlier that day, over lunch, Cortin explains, I've always been involved in the world. I like the world and I like crazy humans. She's a newspaper and news junkie. Her favourite publications include The Financial Times, The Economist and The Washington Post. Cortin grew up in Melbourne, one of seven children in a rambunctious, poor Catholic household. The naughtiest kid in the family. At twelve, she was sent to board in a convent school. I was in heaven. It was bliss, she says. Not only did she finally have her own bed, but there was no chaos around me. I had discipline. I went to Mass every day. I was in love with God and Our Lady and the saints. It was perfect for me. In her late teens, she discovered boys. Realising she couldn't have God and boys at the same time, she very consciously decided, goodbye God, hello boys. A second-hand record, picked up for sixpence, led her to jazz. I got this seven-inch LP that said, Billy Holiday. I had no idea. I wondered who he was. That opened me up. Just blew my mind because it opened me up to this black American experience of suffering human beings. In the late 1960s, Cortin made her way to London. Rough and ready for revolution. There, she joined radical left demonstrations and supported the Black Panther movement. In 1971, she started working full-time for Friends of Soledad, a British political activist group supporting three black American prisoners charged with the murder of a white prison guard. Then, she moved on to the radical feminist movement. Shedding her tastes for men, she became a radical lesbian feminist, learned martial arts, and moved to the US into a lesbian-run dojo in New York City. In 1976, back in Australia, in Queensland, with a broken foot that stopped her martial arts practice, 31-year-old Cortin spotted a poster advertising a talk 
by two Tibetan Buddhists, Lama Yeshe and Lama Zopa Rinpoche, and decided to go along. That's when I found my path, she says. I was always looking for a way to see the world, why there is suffering, what are the causes of it, and I think I'd exhausted all options for who to blame for the suffering of the world. Since she was ordained 44 years ago, Cortin has worked as an editor of Buddhist magazines and books. In 1996, after receiving a letter from a young Mexican-American former gangster serving three life sentences in a maximum security prison in California, she founded the Liberation Prison Project, a non-profit that offers Buddhist teachings and support to people in prison. Cortin ran the programme for 14 years, assisting thousands of inmates, and she still stays in touch with her prison friends. Recently, she visited one who has been on death row in Kentucky since 1983. He lives in this garbage dump of a prison. No sensory pleasure whatsoever. The food is just horrible. No freedom to do much at all. He's seen as a monster. And he's this happy guy, she says. A practicing Buddhist. He's fulfilled and content. He's worked on his mind, accepted responsibility for his actions. And although he would love to be released from prison, he accepts his reality. I'm ready for that electric jolt, he told me. I ask Cortin if she feels any sense of anger about this man's plight. No, I don't. I tried to help him where he's at. That's it, she says. I remember when I was a radical political activist in London in the early 1970s. That was when I was angry. That was when I was in a rage. Racism, sexism, injustice are just as bad now, if not worse. The prison system in America is fucking outrageous. But I work differently now. The trouble is, we conflate seeing a bad thing with being angry. We feel if we give up anger, we chuck the baby out with the bathwater. Cortin says she's still an activist. But maintaining anger is like stabbing ourselves with a knife. It just paralyzes you. Instead, she practices what she calls courageous compassion. There's a saying in Buddhism, a bird needs two wings, wisdom and compassion. Wisdom is the internal, putting yourself together. Compassion is when you put your money where your mouth is and help the world. Since the late 2000s, Cortin's lived out of a suitcase teaching in Buddhist centres around the globe, only coming to a halt in March 2020 in Santa Fe when the pandemic hit. She started teaching over Zoom. I adore Zoom! And a friend set up and runs her social media. Her TikTok account, which has 85,600 followers, has short videos, sometimes responding to current events, with titles such as How to Live in This World Without Losing Your Mind. There's a way of using the world to develop your practice, she says. Take former US President Donald Trump, for example. I'd watch Mr Trump and, instead of ranting and raving about how bad he is, I'd go, well, that's lies, I recognise that. That's anger, I recognise that. That's vanity, I recognise that. That's arrogance, I recognise that. There's not a single damn delusion Mr. Trump has that I don't have as well. 
The Buddhist view is that we all have these states of mind. We're all in the same boat. So then I go, thank you for showing me how not to be. Recently, Cortin shared on social media that her sister, Jan, had died after an accident at home. She says the huge response to her post touched me deeply because people were so kind. She got on a flight from the US as soon as she heard about the accident. Alongside her siblings in a hospital room in Melbourne, as Jan's life support was withdrawn, Cortin whispered the Buddhist mantras that accompany death, while the rest of the family boisterously sang the Sydney Swans team song. Once Cortin finishes this current Australian teaching tour, she's moving to New York City, where she plans to settle. For the last years of my life. She plans to write and edit, continue her personal study and Buddhist practice, and teach via Zoom. Maybe I'll go out to a jazz club in the evening, she says, before adding, I'm just joking, I probably won't go to the jazz club. I'm going to try and not waste my life. Try and stay useful. Be useful before I drop dead. That was Honey Child, Listen to Me, a radical Buddhist nun on how to be happy in a crazy world by Bronwyn Adcock, read by Serena Mantegi. Before we go, you've probably heard the advert for our new six-part podcast series, Can I Tell You a Secret? It's great, and all six parts are available to listen to now. Make sure you subscribe to Can I Tell You a Secret wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. This week's articles were read by Serena Mantegi and Stefan Ashton Frank and presented by me, Savannah Oyoade Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.